Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Hello, so welcome everyone. It is a pleasure to have Rabbi Chaim Siedler Feller back here at Valley Beit Midrash teaching virtually with our partner Temple Emmanuel in Colorado. We will be learning about the biblical plagues and our plague in anthropocentric theology and a lesson for our times. And I will turn <laughs> it over to Rabbi Emily Hyatt to introduce our speaker today. Amazing, thank you so much. This is our first class uh, that Temple Emmanuel in Denver is partnering on. And I know that there are lots of people that are excited to watch this over the next uh, week and a half of getting ready and entering into and being in our Passover holiday. Um, I am so excited to be learning with Rabbi Chaim Seidler Feller today. And as I told him, his claim to fame with me is that I know his daughter. And so um, it's always nice to have intergenerational um, knowledge of people. Rabbi Seidler Feller um, is an incredible educator, and we're very, very lucky to be learning with him today among uh, my favorite parts of his um, bio, which you can read on the website if you want all of the details, is that he's really worked a lot of his career with um, college students. And really, I think um, I know a lot of people who have learned with you and who participated in UCLA Hillel, where he was for the meat of his career, and people who really learned how to be um, a Jew in America and how to relate to Israel and how to relate to their own Jewish identity from Rabbi Seidler Feller and from those experiences uh, in LA. Um, my favorite part of his bio, things that we can only hope for, is that in 2020, um, there was, I don't even know if I'm saying it right, because I've only ever read the word, a fetz shrift. Did I get it? Is it, made, yeah, so, is, it was written in his honor. When you have done amazing things in the world, you sometimes people contribute to um, a book that that talks about um, how the world has changed. Uh, it's called Swimming Against the Current, Reimagining Jewish Tradition in the 21st Century. And it was published in his honor, meaning that he impacted, I think, that world enough to have contributions made um, to the book that tells the story. And so with that, we are very lucky to be learning with you today, Rabbi, uh, and getting us ready for Passover, for Pesach, and digging into uh, a new perspective. So thank you so much for having us here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Emily. Uh, and, and, you know, we, 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 we just met, um, and what you said about what I tried to do in my years at UCLA was just so right on. I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased in how you read my my life, my life commitment. Um, and the other thing I wanted to say about that introduction was that um, one of the editors of the volume um, that was published in my honor was 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 our son. So um, that 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 was an added dimension of of of, of an enormous joy and celebration. And it was a surprise. So on top of that, um, all right. So the subject at hand uh, is 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 a rather uh, tough and difficult one. I, I do want to say one other thing before I begin, because I notice that Carl Zeff is on the call, and uh, I just want to greet you, Carl. If I forget to greet you, um, I, 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 we go we go back a long time, uh, standing under the chuppah together a long time ago. Hello, hello. Well, look at that, Carl and and Sherry. Wonderful. All right. Um, so greetings. Um, it's one of the things that uh, one 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 of the pleasures of uh, of Zoom, uh, the connections that you can make in this in this way. Uh, so the subject uh, ha has bothered me and uh, about um, what what I some some people might might describe as uh, the overzealous um, nature of God's punishment. Uh, of the Egyptians was it all necessary? You know, when we were kids, we all said, "Why do we need 10? I mean, obviously, ten is a, is a is a round number and a necessary number, but but it's still you know over the top, especially the final plagues of Makat Bechorot. How do we How do we understand that uh, the the death of the firstborn? And um, on top of that, um, I I I was I'm connecting this 
to a discussion that was taking place at the beginning of the epidemic, the pandemic, trying to, to locate somehow the cause of uh, this epidemic in um, violations, in the sins of the people uh, of, of contemporary society. Um, and that always um, offends me, that, that effort to know God's will, to be able to assign with definitiveness uh, why it is that certain things are occurring, um, and to judge other people as a result. Um, and this, was, this, this exercise um, was being undertaken by uh, across religions. I mean, you know, I sort of collected some information from the Hebrew press in Israel, uh, from the Jewish press, from the New York Times and other articles. Uh, and you saw that ministers across the religious spectrum were all uh, giving their opinions as to uh, what, 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 the causes of, what the causes of the suffering, um, uh, the, you know, the divine causes of the suffering. So I'm, I'm concerned in general with this uh, uh, need to locate within God the cause of our suffering, which is an old effort. Uh, and in particular, how do we understand the violence that emanates from God in, with regard to the plagues in Egypt? So I want to start our discussion in, in an uncomfortable place. I mean, a lot of this discussion is not so, not so easy. And that's the issue of reward and punishment in Judaism. Not a small matter. And uh, if we were together and I had an opportunity to look to you, in fact, uh, you know, if you're willing to participate in some way and unmute yourselves, uh, if you can, um, I, you know, I, I, I would ask you, where is reward and punishment? Where are we confronted with, a, with reward and punishment on a daily basis, at least once? Traditionally, twice. Anyone, anyone venture? Can, can, uh, Pam, can they unmute themselves? Yeah. Oh, you can unmute yourselves. Yeah. Anyone, anyone with a suggestion? It's constant. I mean, it's it's right in front of us, and it's in a, in, a, in a in a significant prayer that that we recite. Oh, the Shema. The Shema. Who who's that? Who's that? Suzanne Singer. Ah. Oh, I have to change my name. Suzanne Singer. Hi. Ah, Suzanne Singer. Not not Temple Bethel, right? No, Suzanne. it's not Temple. <laughs> okay. Excellent. So in the Shema. So the second paragraph of the Shema. If you abide by my commandments, then the rain will fall. And if you violate my commandments, uh, uh, the, the, the rain, you know, there, there won't be sufficient rain. And then you'll be banished from your land. So it seems to be that if we do God's will, nature works for us. If we don't do God's will, then God has set nature to oppose us. Except don't forget the reform movement took that paragraph out. So I never say that paragraph. All right. Well, well, all right. So, so I'm I I am i am opposed to the, to that um, to those rash uh, movements on on the grounds that you know the the worst the worst that there is is we have a dilemma, and 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 it seems to me that I mean I'm sorry to veer from the discussion, but you raise this issue of of sort of erasing part difficult difficult passages. First of all, in general, I, I always say there's no whiteout in scripture. It's there. You know, and it, it, whether it's not recited, recited, not recited, it's there on the books and it's central to the definition of what the Shema is. Secondly, it, it's an opportunity for people to deal with this question. That's, the, that's, that's what we lose when we omit it, because we should confront this. After all, the doctrine of reward and punishment was a traditional doctrine, and no doubt people had a much more traditional understanding of what it meant in antiquity. So, but for us, you know, in our sort of self-conscious understanding of what it means to be a religious person, it's extremely problematic. You know, you do this, you know, and, and then, uh, you, the, you know, the people who are experts at identifying why this is happening to you. I mean, we, there, are, there, there, there are all sorts of people who do this. In fact, when authorities do that, they give license to people who are not authorities. So everybody has an opinion about why, you know, that they can locate as to why this is happening. And what's, what's lost, and it seems to me that's where I, I'm going to go, I may as well tell you where I'm going to go, what's lost is a self-examination. To what extent, it, you know, it's not God, to what extent is it us? And I want, I want to be able to demonstrate to you that that indeed is 
what the tradition really intends. I would even, I, I would make the claim that it, it intends this, you know, all along, if we can sort of um, re reach that point of, under of understanding. So the, our first entry into the discussion of reward and punishment um, is a text from Maimonides. I'm going to share my screen. And um, let me see where we are. Here we are. And hopefully you all see the sources. Um, now, I, I, do, I do want to uh, and I'll warn you, we're not going to be able to do all the sources that I brought you, but I'll tell you what they teach and why, why, why I, I brought them. Um, and I do want uh, to sort of present what I would say a more humanistic understanding of the, of the function of the importance of the plagues and what they, and, and what they mean. So Maimonides was troubled by this idea of reward and punishment. And by, in particular, he was troubled by the notion that religious people would be motivated to serve God out of the fear that they would be punished and out of the, the expectation that uh, in, in exchange for serving God, they would be rewarded. And uh, I, I would say that he definitely saw this as, a, as an inferior form of religious commitment, uh, despite the fact that he was aware of he was aware of the fact that most people relate religiously from that from that point of view. People assume if I'm a religious person, then that I, I, I get benefits. And if I and if they have a religious point of view, they're scared that, that from an early age, it's sort of inbred within them to fear what the consequences are of violating. Uh, of violating God's will. So Maimonides writes, and I'll, I'll read, I'm not gonna read all, all the passages, just a few, few of the sections. Let no person say, behold, I perform the precepts of Torah and engage myself in the wisdom so that I will receive all the blessings described therein, or so that I will merit the life in the world to come. And I will separate myself. So in other words, you shouldn't do, uh, perform God's will because of an expectation of reward. And I will separate myself from the transgressions against which the Torah gave warning so that I will escape the curses described therein or so that I will suffer excision from uh, the life in the world to come. It is improper to serve the Lord in such a way for whosoever serves God in such a way, such a person is a worshiper because of fear, which is neither the degree of the prophets nor the degree of the sages, meaning that it's neither spiritually inspired nor is it an, uh, nor is it a ration nor is it a rational understanding. In other words, there's no spiritual dimension to that association, nor is it rational. It is improper to serve the Lord in such a way. For whoever serves the Lord in such a way is a worshiper because of fear. Now, I would say the person serving God for these motives is not the critique. Is they're not serving God; they're serving themselves. In other words, I do what God wants me to do because I get something. I refrain because then God protects me. So it's not God that I'm serving. It's myself that I'm serving. And self-worship is a form of idolatry. I mean, so, so one has to be careful. Now, Maimonides doesn't go that far because in, his, in his critique. He merely says that it's not, it's not the uh, admirable, it's not the desirable form of, of commitment to God. However, because he's psychologically sophisticated, he understands that it's really difficult to bring people um, to that level. But he goes on to say, and God should not be worshiped that way, save only by ignorant men, women, I'm sorry, um, uh, by ignorant people who are trained to worship because of fear until their knowledge increases when they will worship because of love. Now that's really important. What Maimonides says is, look, I understand educate, the educational process. When you have young children, you have to introduce limits. One of the ways of introducing limits is, you know, there's a, there's a dimension of punishment that, that's a consequence of violating those limits. And, and uh, there are some sweet uh, crackers or sweet, I mean, whatever, sweet uh, 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 treats that they might get if they fulfill your will, meaning your personal will. And so too is, a, is our introduction to some training in how to, uh, the, in, into the discipline, into the discipline of commitment, of religious commitment. However, what Maimonides is intimating here is, even though this may be the approach with young, younger children, it's the responsibility of our educators 
to be able to elevate the understanding of people as they get older, as, as they educate them, and present them with a much more sophisticated understanding of religion, where you're not involved in a, what, what, you know, what, I, what I might call, you know, the, the um, uh, what is it? It's a type of gas station religion. You know, you, you stick in your, uh, your money and you, get, and you get a response immediately. Um, uh, it's, 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 it's a way of life that's transformational, not because you, rec you can recognize immediately the benefits or, uh, or the punishments, but that takes time till you can reach that dimension. So in other words, what, he, what Maimonides wants is for people to uh, aspire to an uncontingent relationship to God. It's like a relationship to the person you love. You want the person you love to understand that you're there for them, whether you get anything or not. You'll be there. Even when it costs you, you'll be there. That's the thing, right? Because you're committed. Now, in other words, and, and in some ways, God, I'm, I, you know, this is a bit of a stretch. God allows us in our relationship with the divine to train ourselves in how to be better human beings in our relationship to one another. By developing a notion of religious commitment that's uncontingent, that's in some ways, I do the, the good because it's good, not because I get something for that good. That's a way of training us to be better citizens, to be better humans, to be better in our relationships with, with one another, where it's, all, it's, where it's not all transactional. Right? You know about transactional uh, leader, leadership that we've had? I mean, that it's, it can't be just about that. There needs to be some principle. How do you, how do you move people to that level of understanding? Um, uh, so let me see if we, I guess we can, we can skip some of this. Okay, now let's read the last paragraph. One who engages himself in the study of Torah in order to receive a reward or in order to prevent himself from being overtaken by punishment is one who studies the Torah not for its own sake. So here you see the great educator in Maimonides, but one who studies it neither because of fear nor because of reward, but because of love for the Lord of the whole earth who commanded concerning it is one who, study, who studies it for its own sake. Therefore, when instructions are given to infants, excuse this term here, I'm sorry for the, um, the, the sort of the, uh, the anti-feminist, uh, my Maimonidean inclination here. It's uh, sort of, it comes from his, from his, uh, from Aristotle in a way. Uh, and the ignorant in general, they should not be instructed save to worship because of fear until their knowledge will increase and they will become wise in wisdom when, okay? So in other words, in other words, the principle is, which he had articulated in a prior paragraph is, that the tradition says better, better that people should begin with religion as a crutch and as they grow older, begin to derive meaning that allows them to transcend the dimension of religious act actions that are only motivated by personal gain or, pro or protection and gradually wean themselves from what in Hebrew we call lolishma, from performance not for its own sake, and uh, be able to uh, reach the point where we're doing the good, as I said, because it's good. We're doing it for its own sake, rather than because we know that we're going to get something for it. Right? So that's, from, that's sort of the educational trajectory uh, that Maimonides uh, upholds. And it, it, it demonstrates to you that although he was an elitist, he was an elitist who made accommodations for understanding the nature of the people. And his, his great desire was not, was not that he remain in the elite. His great desire was that everybody be able to, uh, uh, to embrace uh, this, this worldview, a difficult worldview, a difficult worldview. But who said, you know, religion is not so easy, I must say. Then look what he says here. And then he says, they should not be instructed save to worship because of fear until then. And they will, when this secret is revealed to them little by little and get them acquainted with the subject slowly until they will attain and know it, 
when they will serve God because of love. In other words, they should gradually be weaned until the secret is clear to them and what, in other words, what God desires, and they will only be, uh, be committed on the grounds of love. Now, my contention here, and I know that I'm stepping out on a limb, is that when Maimonides says this secret, the, se the real secret, the most profound secret of all, is that there really is no reward and punishment. Now, I don't know, you know how, you, how you say that in a religious context, but in other words, the medieval philosophers right, were struggling with this notion. Maimonides is not the only one. Gersonides, you see this in, 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 their, uh, in the way in which they struggled. They, they understood that although that seems to be the baseline of religious involvement, their task is to allow people to go beyond the baseline, certainly, and to reach to reach the goal. In other words, you you should you should aspire to the goal, and with the knowledge that you can't always you can't always maintain that. It's difficult to main, to maintain that, but you need to know that that's what it's about. Listen, listen to what Maimonides says in in the guide. He introduces a distinction in his in his uh, ph uh, philosophy that's really very useful. He says, sum up what we have said concerning beliefs as follows. In some cases, a commandment communicates a correct belief. All right. In other cases, the belief is necessary. You know what he's doing here? There are two levels of truth. There is the necessary truth and there is the correct truth. The necessary truth is what's necessary for the people in order to be able to involve them, to attract them, to begin the process. As you educate a child, you begin the process with something that's necessary for them to be able to buy in. But when you have their buy-in, you're, you're what should I say? It's a violation to allow them to stay in that state where, in a way, you control them by the things you tell them because they're, they're scared or whatever them, and, and, and you use that to manipulate. On the contrary, you should give them a sense of freedom and allow them to understand that what religion is about is then a fulfillment that's realized through them doing what's, what's right not what's doing what they're told to do because of their fear. Right? So the correct, the, the necessary opinion is a stage in the capacity that we have to develop the correct opinion. And there are many examples of Maimonides in his work in, in the guide where he utilizes uh, that distinction. And the necessary opinion is not the opinion that could be borne out philosophically as a um, a, 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 as a strong as a strong representation of the truth, it's a weaker, uh, um, relative, relatively truthful. Meaning, it serves a purpose, but it's not the goal that we want people to attain. Now, one of the what I think what, what struck me as an expression of this awareness that our involvement in the world should not be on the grounds that because we do certain things, then you know, God will be around at all times, working in nature uh, and, and pulling the strings, making it rain, uh, causing earthquakes, uh, bringing the sunlight every morning, and so on and so forth. Um, uh, I, I, a striking expression is in Rabbi Koch's writings, and I'm sorry I didn't translate it, I haven't translated it. I'm gonna translate a few lines. So Rabbi Cook was the first chief rabbi of Palestine, appointed in 1920 by the British. He was a, uh, a, a legal scholar of the Talmud for sure, but he was in addition, a mystic, a poet, a spiritual uh, figure who, was who, who, who promoted a sense of inclus inclusiveness. Uh, he made it his business uh, to visit kibbutzim that was secular kibbutzim. In fact, there are all sorts of stories about kibbutzim maintaining a, a, a separate kitchen for Rabbi Cook's visit and so on. And he, under, he communicated to the kibbutzim that he saw them as part of the whole enterprise, that he valued who they were, right? even, though, even though they hadn't reached the point that he would hope that they would, that they would attain. So it's a sort of Maimonidean stance of lo lishma, even though they're doing this not for its own sake, 
eventually they'll attain that, all right? So he, and it, it promoted, there was a degree of enormous tolerance that, uh, that I think that people, people perceived as part of his way of thinking. So he writes as follows. Torah Yisrael, here. Uh, uh, here, I'm reading from this paragraph. Torah Yisrael Mevaeret, the Torah of the Jews of Israel explains, now, this is really, you know, this is a key statement. How the, the sustenance of the world, the existence of the world, and human morality are contingent one on, one on the other. That's, in other words, in other words, it's not, it's not that God hovers over our natural world looking for things to do based on how we behave, but our behavior has direct impact on nature itself. I want you to think about that, because I want you to think about Vahayam Shamoa. It says that if you don't have a disciplined way of living in the world, and you think that it's all yours to use, then you will abuse. And that's when nature won't yield its, uh, its fruit because of you, not because God stopped it from doing so, because you've become an abuser. So Vayam Shamoa is maybe, maybe one of the most relevant paragraphs, the second paragraph of the Shema, right? That we can, uh, Deuteronomy 11, that we should read and focus our attention on today in light of a, a climate catastrophe, that the Torah is giving us uh, a, a standard that we have to that we have to attempt to attain, which is to recognize that our 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 ethics, our morality, the way in which we relate to others and the world around us, how we consider the world. Do we consider the world a blessing? Do we consider it a gift? Are we grateful? Do we appreciate what we have? Do we do we then do, do we understand our existence as wondrous that we want to hold on to? If we do that, then hopefully the world will yield, meaning the world will work. But if we, uh, if, if somehow our arrogance takes over and we see the world as serving our, us and we, begin, and we become abusive because of the way in which we relate not only to the world, but to one another. I mean, in other words, it, it's, all, it, it's all intertwined. The nature of our personality and how we see ourselves, our gratefulness, our, our seeing ourselves as part of a whole. If we see ourselves as part of a whole, then we'll treat the whole with a, with a degree of respect that it deserves. If we see ourselves as apart from the whole, as distinctive, different, and better than the whole, or whatever, as having more control, so on and so forth, then we will ruin the whole in the process. That's, that's the lesson. And, and Rabbi Cook understood that. And look what he says. Cheta Adam, the sin of a human being, kilkel bichlalo et musaro. It corrupted one's ethics. Ad shemala ha'aretz hamas. I mean, I couldn't, you can't say it more, more directly because he's quoting from Genesis before the flood. The world was filled with violence, meaning human beings who were corrupted in their moral behavior the result was that the world was filled with violence. He shrit at meaning he he under he ruined he destroyed the normal the 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 the, the natural way of 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 being. Now listen to this phrase: aleha. The world takes then uh, rebels against that. Meaning, nature rebels, nature reacts. If you push nature to serve you beyond what, in a way that's disrespectful, that doesn't regard the process, the natural process, in the in, 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 in with with a degree of uh, what what we say of of, um, of as, as a as a creation, as something that's been created, so with with a sense of respect. And and, uh, and 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 the capacity to allow nature to 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 actually do what it should do, rather than our attempt to manipulate. If we don't 
respect nature, it will rebel against us. I, I, I mean, I don't know whether anybody could say that any more eloquently uh, than Rabbi Cook. And that's actually the interpretation that I'm attributing to Bahayam Shamoa, to the second paragraph of the Shema. Now, um, this, this it, it, I'm, I'm not going to read this, this source at all, but I think that it, it's, it's evident to you that there's an understanding of idolatry. Idolatry is, in fact, uh, a dimension of self-worship, and it's an assertion that the world is here for me and for my benefit. Uh, and I am the measure of all things. Perhaps this one line that many of us are familiar with from philosophy one, we can therefore appreciate the remarks of Xenophanes, a proto-monotheist living in Greece in the sixth century BCE, who said that the Ethiopian depicts their gods as snub-nosed and black, and the Thracians depict theirs as having red hair and blue eyes. And if horses could draw, they would depict theirs with a long mane, four legs, and a tail. And we tend to project ourselves as gods. That's, that's, that's what happens. And we need, uh, we, we need restraints that, so that we will not, so that that tendency that we have to assert our, our arrogance, our control, the fact that we're the measure, that that, that that tendency will somehow be halted, will be restrained, will be limited. Because that's sort of, I mean, we, we naturally go to that place. We rely on ourselves. It's very difficult. In other words, what I'm, what, what I'm pro proposing here is that the religious personality has to look at the world with a degree of humility. That's, that's the stance. And recognize how overwhelmingly magnificent this creation is that we've been given. And regard it with this sense of respect that won't allow them to misuse it. And the idolater, the idolater doesn't have that restraint. And the idolater says, it's about me. And I can do whatever I want. And nature will continue to yield because that's the way, that's the way it's been. That's how it was when I was a kid, right? They gave me a lot of sweets when I was a kid, you know? So, you know, that, that, that's, how, that's how it happens. Now, I want to emphasize this point about our being a part of the whole rather than being apart from the whole. And I want to point you to this, this, this source, a commentary by Joseph Ibn Kaspi. Ibn Kaspi was a philosopher uh, living in Provence. He lived in the town in, this, in the city of Arjan. Um, and um, he was a, a thoroughgoing, thoroughgoing Maimonidean. And he might have been as, as in my reading, and I think reading what others say about him, he might have been a vegetarian. Um, and uh, he writes magnificently here. Let, let me read a little bit of what he has to say. He, he says as follows. Besides the eradication of cruelty. So he's writing a commentary in Deuteronomy on the verse that says, if you want to take the baby birds, you have to send the mother bird away first. Besides the eradication of cruelty that the Torah wishes to make us conscious of, um, our own, um, the Torah wishes to make us conscious of our own status, to remove pride and self-importance. I mean, it, wow, I, I, I can't emphasize enough the absence of education or, or conversation about humility in the Jewish context. I don't think we're good at it. We're good at success. We're good at being great. We're not, we're not so good at being modest. Not our leadership, not the people we honor, not what we look for, not what we look to attain. You know? And it's a, it's a flaw in, the, in our development of our, of our religious personalities. In our pride, we foolishly imagine that there is no kinship between us and the rest of the animal world, how much less with the plants and vegetation. To, I mean, this is amazing in the 14th century. To eradicate this foolish notion, God gave us certain precepts, some concerning minerals, other vegetable, other animal, and other human. Above all, we are bidden to be compassionate to all other human beings, love thy neighbor as thyself. That's the goal, right? So that's the highest standard. Next in order come our relations with animal, with the animal which we are allowed to slaughter in an approved manner when thy soul desires flesh, as it says in Deuteronomy, since we are originally designed to be vegetarian as stated in Genesis. It was only after the flood that the consumption of meat became widespread, which is tantamount. What is that tantamount? Listen to this. I've never seen anything like this, which is tantamount to our eating our parent, 
since it is nearest to our substance. You know that when, I don't know how many of you went to yeshiva or where, whatever Jewish school you went to where they told us, they said, how could we be descendants of monkeys? Does that befit us? We're human beings. We're greater than monkeys. So just, so uh, Ibn Kaspi says, what are you talking about? We're related to monkeys. And he has no qualms about making this assertion. It doesn't diminish the nature of creation itself. On the contrary, it enhances evolution, enhances the notion of creation and evolving growth and creativity that emerges, that, em that emerge in the world. So there's a natural continuum between the human being and the animal world, and not only animal world here. I mean, he goes on to say, here, we can read from here, they are not so stringent again with regard uh, when we talk about the plant world, we are forbidden to cut down fruit trees and the like. After this comes the soil and inert matter, which is still further removed, but, a but akin to us. And those of us who live in California know that the earth itself is alive, the rocks are alive. So there's all of creation is alive with it, with, as, as from a religious perspective, with a divine essence. It's, a, it's an expression of the divine essence, of the divine vitality that's part of the world. Thus, the land itself must be, must be rested every seven years. To conclude, the Torah inculcates in us a sense of our modesty and lowliness, that we should be ever cognizant of the fact that we are the same stuff as the ass and the mule. I don't usually say this, the cabbage and the pomegranate. Hi, everybody, I'm a cabbage, you know, um, and even the lifeless stone. So you want to understand the, uh, a, a, an educational program about dealing with nature, begin to see yourself as part of that nature, as related to that nature. And there's a, a continuum, there's part of us is in that. I mean, that's true, by the way, scientifically. There are elements of us in all, in all of the world itself. And if we had that perspective, we would relate to the world or we would have related to the world very differently from what we've done up till now and how and what our attitudes are and our continued arguments about these, this question. So Ben Cosby certainly sees the, the natural continuum between our, uh, our humanity and, 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 and nature itself. In other words, he would, he, sort of augmenting what Ralph Cook says, that our morality uh, has an impact on the, world, on the world itself. Now, what was Pharaoh's story? What was going on with Pharaoh? And the Torah is very, uh, explicit. What's the problem with Pharaoh? And, and what, what was the function of the plagues? So on the, on the first level, what I would say here, this is a midrash that will, give, that will illuminate some of the, some of the problem and, 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 and the Pharaonic attitude, right? The, the, when we look, when we, when we see what's happening between Israel and Egypt, then there is, I think there's a key to understanding the confrontation. It's the confrontation between ancient paganism and an emerging notion, monotheistic idea. And the role of Israel in antiquity was what I call to be, their, their role was to be the dragon slayers. Their role was to defeat the empire. And the problem with the empires is that there has been no empire in history that hasn't been abusive. Also, by the way, that didn't eventually self-destruct. So it, the, the, the Torah sort of takes on this, the greatest civilization of antiquity, Egyptian, Egyptian civilization. We had, you know, the question is, what was our experience there? That's, that's, an, that's, 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 another, that's another discussion. Um, and our critique of that, of that system is that in the pagan world, the king oftentimes, most often, asserted their right to rule as a divine right and saw themselves as divine representatives, if not the embodiment of the divine themselves. So uh, counter to all Ibn Kasmi's appeals for humility, the pharaonic ideal was one of extreme, the pharaonic pose, I'm sorry, of extreme arrogance. So Moses and Aaron come to confront Pharaoh and they say, God sent them. Pharaoh's answer is, who's this God? I've checked my books. 
I looked, you know, you told me the, his name. I looked in my books. His name does not appear. Meaning, he's not one of those gods that I know, whose attributes I know, and wh who my magicians and myself can deal with. We know how to deal with all those natural forces because the gods are expressions, concre they're concrete expressions of those natural forces that we worship because we wanna protect ourselves out of fear, out of service, because of what we can get. I'm in charge, by the way, Pharaoh is, I'm in charge of all the gods. I can do whatever I want. In fact, most of us in Hebrew school were taught that Pharaoh never allowed anybody to see that he had sort of a natural evacuation, that he had a, a digestive system that worked like all human beings. He would make it his business to get to the Nile early in the morning when nobody was around to see him. You know, and, and Moses caught him in the morning with his pants down, literally. I mean, that's that you have that in the Midrash sort of uh, uh, tells us that, you know, you're re you really are Pharaoh. I know who you are. You really are a human being. That's the problem. Someone who doesn't think of themselves as a human being, who actually has a sense that they're greater than everybody else, will then use everybody else, manipulate everybody else, abuse everybody else, and try to control their lives. That's the critique of the 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 the, the empire, the civilization. That's the that's the cause for the rebellion. We the rebellion of the slaves in Egypt was a rebellion in order to demonstrate that human freedom is something to be granted to all and and the goal is a sense of equality as against the pharaonic uh, hierarchical system where in that hierarchy different people merit uh, different rewards or different status and they have the right they have rights to lord it over others that's what that's what the torah wants to undermine now listen to this poignant conversation between pharaoh and and um uh, and, and and moses and aaron you know he he's questioning here at the end of the midrash you can read the whole thing on your own he then said to them what deeds did god perform I want to know who this God is. What does he do? So then Moses and Aaron give him a whole, whole spiel about what, what God has done. From, and then uh, they, they, uh, Pharaoh, Pharaoh responds. Excuse me one second. I have to, my cursor. Where is What's going on here? His reply, his reply to them was, from the very outset, you have spoken falsehood. This is what Pharaoh tells Moses and Aaron. For I am the Lord of the universe, and I have created myself and the Nile. As it says, my river is mine own, and I have made it for myself. Li yaori in Ezekiel. Li yaori va'ani asitani. I made it. I'm the creator. You could not have a more explicit expression of the fact that the world is about me. I'm the arbiter. I'm in charge. I'm God, and I have the right. Your God is invisible, unknowable, a nothing. And I, I won't abide by that nothing. The magic of the God of Israel is that God is invisible, beyond all control. That's the, that, that's the struggle. How do you bring people to be devoted to that which can't be proven? In order, by the way, not because you know, you're, you're so certain about what, the, about what that God is, but because you want to avoid the consequence of what happens in the vacuum. If there's not something beyond, someone will step forward and say, I'm the one who's beyond. God is the guarantor that no human being will arrogate to themselves the role of being God. So God becomes, he sets the, that's the profound lesson of the, our encounter in Egypt, that we need to have a sense of what, what the Torah calls Yirat Elohim, uh, or Yirat Shamayim, the fear of heaven, mean in, in a constructive sense, a, a well-developed sense of awe and an awareness that we're only human in the presence of the grandness of, of the universe, the grand nature of the universe and the great nature of, of the divine. So Pharaoh rejected this. The result of this is that what happens if Pharaoh the God sets himself up against the God of Israel and says, I'm in charge, I control nature. So the battle of the plagues is a battle against the gods of Egypt, as it says explicitly in one of the verses in Exodus, that you know God says, my fight is with the gods of Egypt. And therefore, this chart is somewhat helpful at the first level of understanding of what the role of the plagues are. 
it's uh, the, the role of the, the plagues are to counter Pharaoh's arrogance. It's a battle against the gods and, and each one of the plagues, except you know where, where it's missing here, these two here, correspond to the characteristics or the symbol of that particular god. Um, in in uh, in in the Egyptian in the Egyptian pantheon, so the battle uh, of the plagues against Pharaonic Egypt is a battle to to demonstrate that God is beyond all natural forces, and the natural forces actually are part of a part of our world that we cannot control. Only God is in charge. We can't possibly have the, be able to determine the course of the natural. The natural world, uh, uh, it, it totally, totally, and and imagine that it's in our hands. If anybody, by the way, um, maybe uh, is uncertain about that lesson, it seems to me that that was one of the central lessons of the experience. If we can talk about lessons at all of the pandemic, we're not in control. We don't know. You know, it's it, it it's not for us to make it. We can't even control it now. It, that's what you're, you're at Elohim, that phrase that's so difficult, the fear of the Lord means we're not in control. Do you know that? If you know that, then you've learned the lesson from Egypt. The problem is that Pharaoh, not only did Pharaoh not know it, he didn't want his people to know that because he wanted the people to fear him rather than have fear for the, for the beyond, right? And, and develop that sense of humility that's a consequence. So this is the first level of understanding. And there, again, you know, uh, much to say, I, I should point you to the fact that, by the way, that in the uh, discourse and conversation and exchange between Pharaoh and Moses and Aaron, we actually have some hints at this very interpretation because in, in one phrase, Pharaoh says to Moses and Aaron, see, ru'u ki ra'ah neged penechem. Look and see, I have made evil uh, up, up against you. And uh, Rashi intimates, although not explicitly, but Casuto, a later biblical commentary, 20th century Italian biblical commentary who taught at the Hebrew University, Casuto says Ra'a actually points to Ra, which is the sun god in Egyptian religion. And what Pharaoh was saying, you guys, you're not going to be able to do anything because I'm in control here and I know that Ra, the sun god is going to get you. Negat, he's again, he's up against you. So the actual dialogue intimates that this is a battle about the nature of the gods and the god. And what is the power of the gods? And do they have any power at all? Right? So that's, that's the argument on, uh, on a basic level and why these symbolic plagues represent the undoing of the, of the natural religion of ancient Egypt and the attempt to move towards a, uh, a different understanding of religion in, in, in human life. Right. A very difficult move. Finally, there a, a, a professor of Bible at the university, at the American Jewish University and a good friend of mine for many years, Yoni Zebit, wrote a series of articles in which he demonstrated something that's, you know, really unlocks this entire episode. And what he demonstrates is that the plagues themselves are directly related to the creation chapter in Genesis. And that's, that's the key. Think of this for a moment. When we talk about frogs, the verb that's used with regard to frogs is yishritfu. Yishritfu, sheretz. Do you hear that? Those of you familiar with Genesis, yishritfu hamayim sheretz nefesh The birth of the, the, sea, the sea animals. It says yishritfu, they'll swarm in the sea. And in Egypt, the frogs were swarming, right? You recognize darkness? Well, you know that God made a distinction between Or and Choshech. I mean, you have to think, think about this. So what, what Zevit says is not that God punished Pharaoh by bringing upon Pharaoh all these plagues, but that basically the plague narrative is a story about how Pharaoh caused the self-destruction of Egyptian civilization. In other words, he brought he brought it down on himself. He undid, he converted creation into chaos, light into darkness, water into blood. He did it. He made life into death. 
And that's and and the, the plagues are themselves uh, represent a judgment, an explicit judgment of the evil that emanates from the arrogance of a ruler who believes it's all about them. They will destroy human beings in the process for their for the sake of their power. We've had we know people like that. Do you, do you know people like that? Think to yourself: Have we had political leaders like that? You know, so so the Torah, think about this, the Torah is warning us. To whom do we give allegiance? In other words, it's not so simple. You know, it's not, it's not about the, their, their, their economic policies. It's about character, about what people think about themselves and to the extent to which they're willing to, to, dom, to dominate us in such a way that, that, that has consequences for our lives. I think about, you know, what I consider to be all the unnecessary lives that were lost here in our own country. I'll, I'll get to that in a moment, in, in the last couple of years, unfortunately. For what? For what? I mean, and what, 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 what brought that about? Um, so now, now, now the, the commentary on this page of Abraham Saba, Abraham Saba uh, actually articulates this notion of the link between the plagues and creation. Uh, and he quotes, uh, he quotes the passage in the Zohar. You have a quasi-English translation here on the bottom, but he goes beyond that. And he says that if Pharaoh's, uh, Pharaoh undid creation and the story of the undoing of creation was the 10 plagues, and meaning that Pharaoh had brought the world to a state of chaos, then when Israel was freed from Egypt and came to Sinai, the 10 commandments reestablished the order, the basic foundation of human morality and human civilization, because the, uh, the society was reestablished on the basis of, of law and a sense of limitation, which appears to be necessary. Human beings need that guidance. They need the framework in which they can struggle to attain and uh, their fulfillment, but they need that direction. So the, in the absence of that direction, the ten plagues undo the ten undo. Ah, I forgot. I forgot one important uh, component. The Mishnah in Pirkei Avot tells us that the world was created by God saying ten times, "Let it be." The world was created with ten statements. Pharaoh undid the world that was created with ten statements through the ten plagues. The uh, the world was potentially reestablished through our embrace of the Ten Commandments, which become the, a, a new road for establishing the, the, the sense of Yirat Elohim, human sense of humility, carrying into the world the feeling that we're commanded. That, in other words, that the world makes a claim on us. It's not that we're, we dominate it. It makes a claim on us and that we're responsible as a result. That's the point. We have responsibility. Freedom means responsibility. And as God's creations, we were, uh, we were invested with that capacity to sustain, to sustain the world and to add uh, ourselves to contribute to creation, to enhance creation, if we work with creation rather than against creation. Ten statements created the world, ten plagues undid creation, ten commandments, an attempt to reestablish an order in the universe where we understand our role in relationship to that which is beyond. Now, a person who gave expression to these ideas, uh, I, th this is a report, by the way, of some suffering in Egypt at a prior, in a prior age. You'll see, especially the underlined uh, parts, it refers to some period in Egyptian history where there were things that were similar to the plagues that are described in Exodus. But I want to bring to conclusion uh, a, a most poignant uh, quote from a speech that I heard Václav Havel present at UCLA. Havel was the leader of the Velvet Revolution that uh, freed um, the Czechs, um, the Czech, well, Czechoslovakia in those days, from communism and was the first president uh, of the Czech Republic. He was a writer, a playwright, a, a real spiritual personality. Listen to what he says. The communist rulers of Czechoslovakia operated according to the all-or-nothing principle of le deluge, hoping that no one would notice. They secured absolute power by bribing the entire population with money stolen from the future generations. 
miners extracting low quality brown coal from strip mines, coal that was then burned without filters, were grateful for the chance to buy VCRs and exhausted after a day's work. It's all about economics, right? Eyes glued to the screen. They failed to notice the pus flowing from the eyes of their children. Their wives noticed. Aprenula deluge is the principle of a person who is related to no order, right? No order, but that of his own benefit. It is the nihilistic principle of a person who has forgotten he is but a part of the world and not its owner, of a person who feels no relation to eternity and styles himself master of space and time. I believe that the devastation of the environment brought about by the communist regime is a warning to all contemporary civilization. I believe you should read the message coming from our part of the world as an appeal. This is 1990, as an appeal against all those who despise the mystery of being, whether they be cynical businessmen with only the interest of their corporations at heart or left-wing saviors high on cheap ideological utopias. Both lack something I would call a metaphysical anchor that is a humble respect for the whole of creation and a consciousness of our obligation to it. Rabbi Havel says this much better than I do. I mean, amazing. I may call him rabbi. Were, were I to encapsulate the experience in one sentence, I would formulate it as follows. If parents believe in God, their children will not need to wear gas masks to school and their children's eyes will be free, will be free of pus. So the question becomes, do we recognize in our own recent experience with our pandemic and the plague that actually decisions were made, not only by our government, by other governments, by the Chinese especially, to, uh, for their own benefit, because they were afraid of the economic consequences, to control the information regarding the plague that could have saved lives, had they been able to announce it earlier, and to save face. In other words, it's a, it's a sense of my, of, the, of, my in, of my image. My image, not the living, the, the potential for humans to continue to live in the world. So if we learn something from the plague narrative, it's how we are completely enmeshed. We are into nature and human behavior are intermingled. And if we and what we need to do is to nurture and cultivate a sense of respect for the natural world that's somehow consistent with who we are as a human being. Because and it, it requires the development of character, a good character in relation to one another, a good character in relation to the world is the outcome of the of this narrative that I seek, that I want to somehow uh, communicate. That needs to be our goal. So, any questions at this time, and then hopefully we still have a few minutes, and maybe we'll go over a couple of minutes. So, please, if anybody has a question, I'm open to your questions. Thank you. Just thank you so much for a brilliant teaching as always. Um, Thomas, you had a question from earlier? I did, yeah. It goes back to the Maimonides quote at the outset. And it was that idea that um, we are fearful and that's the reason why we obey and we're, we're afraid of the, of the repercussions of not obeying. And I was just kind of wondering about that. And, and so basically you said that was kind of an inward turn. And I was thinking to some degree, you could kind of flip that around and say that that fear could be that divine trace in us as well, that we're actually afraid because that's the, the divine element of who we are, that um, uh -huh. kind of, because you mentioned the fear of God at other moments. And I was just thinking perhaps, um, yeah, that's the, the, the transcendent within us that uh, is kind of urging us to, to consider <laughs> um, the, the prospects out there. All right, so 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 there, so the the point is there, there are actually there's two ways of looking at fear. One is the the, the fear of punishment, whereas what you're talking about is a mu is much more of a sense of awe, reverence, reverence that's linked to a uh, you know and and an awareness of my small nature relative you know, and so I so I think you're absolutely right. And it would be wrong to simply denounce fear completely as non-productive you know, non and self-serving and so on and so forth. And, and that, that's, that's why you know, I, I think it's so important for us to try to understand what Yerat Elohim is. Remember, Abraham uh, has an encounter, was it with Abimelech or with Pharaoh? I forget which one he said, because you know, uh, why, does, why does Abraham lie about Sarah? What, what he says, 
There's no fear of God in this place, meaning you who are in charge, you political leaders, you think it all belongs to you. You'll take it. If it's my wife, you'll take it. If it's my wealth, you'll take it. Because it's, it's all about you. So that's, that's the degree of, uh, that, that, that needs to be uprooted. That that Elohim, that, that sense where uh, what Pharaoh was trying to instill is a fear of Pharaoh, not a fear of God. And you're right. That's a very positive dimension of fear. Thank you. So we have time for one more question. Lauren, you unmuted for a minute. Did you have a question or anyone else in the room? So, all right. So I'll, I'll, if, anybody, please, anybody with a question, I'll leave you with a little, a little word, okay? The, the, um, the Maimonides uh, in, 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 in his law code um, says that, um, you know, ask the question. In Leviticus chapter 19, the end of the chapter, uh, the laws of honest weights and measures is juxtaposed with a statement, I'm the Lord your God who took you out of the la land of Egypt. So Maimonides asks, along with the Midrash, he quotes a Midrash, what's the relationship between leaving Egypt and having honest weights and measures? And he says that the exodus and the redemption from Egypt was actually uh, a, 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 among other things, and because there are multiple lessons here, it was a way of instilling within people the, the commitment to create a just marketplace. That is, to nurture a sense of business ethics, the ethics of, uh, and the way in which we interact with one another and the way in which we do commerce with one another. Egypt was a place where commerce was controlled by the wealthy, who used it as a way of, of, of holding that over the people who were less fortunate. And what we need to, and, what, and the freedom from Egypt is the attempt to create a sense of a, 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 an, equal, um, an equal plane uh, uh, and, and, and a society uh, in which there was a sense of respect that was manifest in having an, and having honesty in our daily interactions. And it goes so far as to say the following, all right? If you are honest in your business dealings, if your weights and measures are straight, then you're a person who believes in the exodus. But if you're a person who is dishonest in his dealings with other human beings, who doesn't uh, um, uh, maintain a sense of business ethics, that person denies, denies the exodus. That's amazing. Because what he means to say is, I can look at you, or I should be able to look at you and say, you're an Exodus person. And I should be able to tell that, not because you come to shul three times a day and you proclaim, I believe that God took us out of Egypt. Believing that God took you out of Egypt is senseless unless you actually embody the idea that God took you out of Egypt. To embody that idea means to pursue honest weights and measures, create justice. In the, in, in the social system, in the business, in, in business interactions. And a person who is, claims to be religious, but dishonest is actually desecrating, desecrating the name of God. And that is a person who can't possibly carry the Exodus, the identity of the Exodus with him. All right, let's all, that, that should be part of our effort to try to be Exodus people, you know? And, 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 and with, all, with all the ramifications, because the lessons of the Exodus are so far reaching, it's a foundational experience in, of the Jewish people. And I think we constantly have to mine that experience to try to derive what are the lessons that the Torah is trying to impart. It's not, you know, it's not a great, if you think about it, you know, there's the last thing I'll say, if you're trying to promote uh, a sense of commitment to being part of the Jewish people, I don't think the best advertisement is to start off by saying, hey, you know who we are? We're a bunch of slaves who rebelled against Egypt, you know? I don't know that 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 might not be the most attractive way uh, to bring people into the conversation. Yet, at your seder tables, you will say, uh, "You'll say at the beginning. First of all, you'll say, we were slaves, and you'll also say we were once idolaters, which means we recognize our humble beginnings, and we can't come to a full to an understanding of our relationship to others unless we say we're we're one of the others." 
We are one, we are like them. And we have to work together to bring about this change. So the lessons continue to multiply as we as we confront the Seder and it's it, it's it, I mean I'm so grateful. It's the most it's the richest tradition that I can imagine in terms of imparting meaning to our lives. So a meaningful and and impactful Pesach to all of you, and see what you can get out of what you can decide that you're going to do this year to make a difference in the world. Rabbi Kaim, thank you so much for your time and for everyone who could attend here either in person or virtually later during the recordings. We want to thank our partner as well, um, Temple Emmanuel and Rabbi Emily Hyatt. And if any of you would like to learn us again, we're going to be starting back up on Thursday, April 28th with Rabbi Dr. Eugene Korn. And then there's plenty to learn from during May. We have nine events actually, which is a packed schedule. So you can find us on valleybitmadrash.org and wishing you all a happy and meaningful Passover. When, 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 when's Jean's presentation? It yeah. is on Thursday, April 28th. Ah, okay. All right. Take care, That's everyone. Take care. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you so Bye-bye. much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybaitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.